You're listening to Tom Fitton's weekly update here on JW TalkNet. Hi everyone, Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update here on social media. Thanks for joining us. A lot to talk about and catch up on. Uh, things don't slow down uh, when it comes to corruption here in Washington, D.C. We got exciting developments in our efforts to ensure cleaner elections for you. Good news there. More details of the deep state conspiracy against uh, President Trump, specifically out of the Obama State Department. Uh, plus, I'm going to talk about this uh, emerging scandal. It's actually been around for a while, but the big media has been burying it to help its left-wing friends. It's the Ilan Omar marriage slash immigration slash tax fraud slash who knows what else scandal. I'll be uh, giving you some details on and why you should be paying attention to it. Uh, but first up, let's begin with the good news. We're going to have cleaner elections in Kentucky, thanks to Judicial Watch. The state of Kentucky, or the Commonwealth of Kentucky, has notified Judicial Watch that it has begun a mailing, or it committed, uh, it, it actually, uh, uh, actually mailed up to 200, I think it's 250,000 inactive voters uh, these are people who have not uh, voted, and uh, they're checking to make sure that they're still eligible to vote. And if these folks don't respond, they will be removed from the voting rolls. Now, why did Kentucky do this mailing? Because Judicial Watch sued. And Judicial Watch's uh, lawsuit resulted in a consent judgment wherein Kentucky agreed to uh, do uh, the necessary steps that federal law requires to clean up the voting rolls. And you know, let me give you a little background on the law at issue here. It's called the National Voter Registration Act, and it's properly known as the Motor Voter Bill. And it was passed and signed into law during the Clinton, I think it was the Clinton administration. And uh, the objection from conservatives was that you're going to register everyone win the vote but you're, it's going to lead to more voter fraud and voter registration issues and dirtier election, uh, dirtier election rolls. So the so-called compromise was that the states uh, concurrently would also be required to take reasonable steps to clean up the election rolls. So guess what the left did once the law was passed? They enforced to the hilt the voter registration requirement, meaning that people are able to gain access to voter registration, allowed to encourage to register to vote at, at the DMV, hence the motor voter nature of the name, and then uh, you know, welfare where public services are offered anywhere. And uh, so the left had big pushes to get people registered to vote, which isn't necessarily wrong. Uh, unless, they're, of course, they're being registered in a way that leads to voter fraud, meaning double registrations uh, and we're registering in more than one name and things like that. That's why that other element of the law uh, needed to be enforced, but the left did not want to enforce that. In fact, during the Obama administration, it was never enforced at all because the radicals running the Justice Department at the time had zero interest in doing it. And I think during the uh, Bush administration, there, was only a, there were only a few cases even then. So Judicial Watch to the rescue. Uh, we began uh, filing private lawsuits because the law allows private causes of action against Indiana and Ohio. I think it was back in 2012, 2013. 
that led to good results there. Ohio agreed, uh, settled the case, agreed to uh, do take a key step to clean up its roles. Indiana changed its law, so you know we were happy and ended the lawsuit there. Uh, and uh, of course, the left was furious that we were successful, and they tried to sue to stop uh, Ohio from daring to mail people who haven't voted, asking them if they were still around, and then only removing them if they didn't vote for two federal election cycles. And the Supreme Court upheld our settlement last year. So following up on that are lawsuits against California and Kentucky uh, ended up with results that is going to severely cut back, significantly cut back, uh, the number of inactive names on the rolls. And what do I mean by that? Well, we've done a national analysis, and we're going to probably update it again this year with the new uh, registration and voter data from the 2018 elections. Uh, but prior to that, we had done an analysis and found there are three and a half million names on the rolls that were extra nationally. California alone, Los Angeles County, it looks like there was 1.6 million extra names on the rolls. California hasn't removed a name from the rolls more or less in 20 years. And after that big Supreme Court victory, they agreed uh, to settle the case with Judicial Watch and her other client, or clients, I should say. And uh, L.A. County has begun the process of removing up to 1.6 million names from the rolls. So that's 3.5 million minus potentially 1.6 million. So we're almost cutting it in half with that one county mailing and process. And in Kentucky, again, we have that consent decree. Now the consent decree was, or I should say consent judgment, uh, was uh, last year. And this is the problem. They had a Secretary of State who was elected, I think, in 2012. And one of the reasons Kentucky was a disaster, they had a, several counties where they had more people on the rolls than were eligible to vote. That's a pretty good indication we weren't taking basic steps to clean up the rolls. And um, the person elected Secretary of State Grimes in 2012, you know, essentially just because of the leftist antagonism to the law stopped cleaning up the rolls in Kentucky. So it was a big mess when Judicial Watch uh, stepped in. Uh, but we did get the consent judgment. And actually, the Justice Department under President Trump, one of the few good things it did in this area, they intervened. So they were on our side for a change. So Kentucky said no mas, and they uh, agreed to the consent judgment. And this is what the uh, consent judgment says. The practices currently in place in Kentucky do not comply with the MVRA's requirement that states conduct a general voter registration list maintenance program that makes a reasonable effort to remove ineligible persons from the rolls due to a change in residence outside the jurisdiction. So uh, they sent 250,000 names, uh, uh, this notice that I'm talking about, back in, I think it was in June. That's 7% of Kentucky's voters' rolls. And by the way, that's about half of what they ultimately probably need to do. So there's probably going to be another 250,000 or so they mail. So we had 1.6 million 
plus 250,000, that's 1.85 million. Now, not all of those names will be removed, and it will take time to remove all those names, two election cycles potentially. Certain names will be removed, will be removed immediately if they're doing their jobs. But the process has begun. So it's 3.5 million minus 1.85 million. We've cut the problem almost in half. And it was Judicial Watch that did it, did it, not Congress, not the Justice Department. Well, the Justice Department helped a little bit in Kentucky. California, they, weren't any, they were nowhere to be found. So this is a major development. So why is it important that, dirty, that election rolls be clean? Because dirty election rolls can mean dirty elections. Because when you have names on the rolls who have not voted, or moved away, uh, become inactive, uh, or the people are dead, that's a pool of voters that those who want to vote illegally can dip into. So that's why you need clean election rolls. So this is a big, uh, a big victory for election integrity, these efforts that Judicial Watch is undertaking. And there was a story in the Real Clear Investigations by Mark Hemingway the other day. And he said, and this is the title of the story, who will clean up America's voting will? Who will clean up America's voting role? Voter rolls, excuse me. Judicial watches. And this is what he said. Judicial watches role in demanding enforcement of federal law raises another important question. Where has the Justice Department been? With a small number of lawsuits, Judicial Watch has arguably done more to enforce federal voter integrity provisions in the last couple of years than the DOJ has in the last couple of decades. And I want to go a little bit into this because the Obama administration's approach here was so corrupt that uh, it deserves exploration and I, we need to educate you and others about what was going on. The Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department uh, as I say, was run by hardcore leftists under Eric Holder and later Loretta Lynch during the eight years of the Obama administration. They uh, infamously, you may recall, uh, suppressed that Black Panther case over the voter intimidation outside that Philly polling place in 2000, uh, 2008. Yeah, that's when Obama was elected, wasn't it? Or two, yeah, it was 2008, yeah. And uh, and then it was just they didn't think the uh, civil rights laws can be applied to anyone other than minorities. So they had this race-based approach to civil rights enforcement. And in Section 8, um, it was pretty clear they had zero interest in doing it. Thirteen witnesses told the Office of Inspector General of the Justice Department, this is a quote in Mark's story highlights, that Julia Fernandez, who was a Obama appointee, at a July 2009 meeting uh, said that Section 8 cases should not be brought. These are the cleaning up the voting rolls cases. Fernandez stated that she did not care about or was not interested in pursuing Section 8 cases or similar formulations. For, his, for instance, uh, Chris Heron, who was there, told the OIG that Fernandez made a controversial and very provocative statement at this brown bag lunch. I guess there was a brown bag lunch of a bunch of employees of the Civil Rights Division, 
voting section two. In particular, Heron stated that Fernandez stated something to the effect of section eight does nothing to help voters. We have no interest in that. Ten attorneys who attended the meeting told the OIG that they interpreted Fernandez's comments to be a clear directive that division leadership would not approve section eight list maintenance cases in the future. And sure enough, none were brought. So that was an obvious conclusion uh, borne out by the facts that the uh, Justice Department under Barack Obama refused to enforce federal law that requires uh, the federal government uh, to make sure that the states are taking reasonable steps to clean up the rolls. Now, it doesn't mean that the rolls are going to be perfect. It says reasonable steps. That means asking if people are still there, and if they don't respond and don't vote over two election cycles, removing their names from the rolls. It doesn't prevent anyone from voting. Frankly, if you show up and vote, even if you hadn't voted previously, you'll likely be able to vote. So this is a big issue, and, um, and it's part of this issue, and this is part of a bigger problem. The left has zero interest in voter integrity. Uh, they are out to undermine election integrity because I'm convinced they want to be able to steal elections when necessary. Uh, they, vote, they, they don't want the rolls cleaned up. They opposed us in Los Angeles County. They opposed us in Ohio. When they had control of the Justice Department, they refused to enforce the law. And Judicial Watch had to step in and enforce the law. They opposed voter ID. It's unlikely you live in a state where there's a significant voter ID law. I think there are only 10 or 11 states where the voter ID law is serious enough to actually require a voter ID. A lot of states have voter ID laws that really aren't voter ID laws, meaning they don't stop you from voting if you don't have voter ID. But certainly many of the bigger states, like California, they don't have a voter ID law. Millions of voters can show up, no voter ID. The District of Columbia, I vote here in the District of Columbia. I go to vote, you know what I do? I give them my name and they have me sign. That's their voter ID law here in the District of Columbia, our nation's capital. So if I know someone's name, I know their address, I can go vote in their name. It would be illegal, but there's little effort to make sure that doesn't happen. So uh, they oppose voter ID, and they also oppose, which is what uh, kind of voter ID is, is really yesterday. Most Americans support voter ID. Uh, the real cutting edge issue is citizenship registration. And I talked about this in a uh, speech I gave out in Denver, Colorado last week. And if you haven't watched the speech, you should, uh, to the Western Conservative Summit. And I went through all these issues, voter registration, I mean, uh, cleaning up the rolls, voter ID, citizenship verification. Right now, you go to register to vote. Typically, uh, I think almost in every state but one, uh, they require no citizenship verification. I mean, you're supposed to attest that you're a citizen, uh, but they don't check to make sure that's the case. And once you're registered to vote, uh, if you're an alien who has signed that unlawfully, uh, many aliens have the voter ID, for instance, necessary to vote. So voter ID isn't going to stop an alien from voting. And we know the numbers are there that aliens vote in uh, significant numbers. 
frankly, I think one illegal vote by an alien or an American is too many. But we have virtually nothing in place uh, to significantly curtail the potential abuse of aliens voting in our elections. And so you pair all of that with open borders, the lawlessness of open borders, the efforts to, uh, by the left to take away the distinction between citizens and non-citizens. They want to offer the medical care, tuition, you know, all, all the sorts of rights and benefits you get as an American citizen, much of which are related to the welfare state. Others are related to voting. You're hearing more and more leftists talk about aliens voting in our elections. Of course, that will be harder with voter ID and citizenship verification in place because it will alert Americans to the distinction we have as citizens, that only citizens should have a say in the direction of our country, not someone with an allegiance to another country. I mean, we have a lot of law-abiding aliens here in the United States as it is. They're green card holders, but they're not citizens. They're citizens of other nations. So this lawlessness on elections, I think, is, is pretty darn dangerous to the republic. And it's all part of a piece. And uh, this is why I'm so proud of Judicial Watch's election integrity project that is behind these victories in California and Kentucky, that we're litigating and filing briefs in favor of voter ID, examining the ballot harvesting threats in California where you've got out-of-control ballot harvesting challenging in Colorado uh, the issue of the uh, effort to undo and overturn the Electoral College, trying to get documents about that effort. I mean, Judicial Watch is doing as much, if not more, than any single entity in the United States to ensure your vote is counted, that your elections are clean, and that your elections aren't stolen and we're having success doing it. Nearly two million inactive voters will be cleaned up from the voting rolls over the next few years, thanks to Judicial Watch. And it's just the beginning. So some great news there. Uh, and of course, Judicial Watch is known, uh, we're obviously doing direct lawsuits here against government entities to uh, get them to do the right thing and to stop them from violating the law. Another law the government always violates is the Freedom of Information Act. The Federal Freedom of Information Act passed, I think it was in 19, 1967. It was signed by uh, President Johnson. President Johnson didn't want to sign it from what I recall. So the left has used the Freedom of Information Act, or was known for using the Freedom of Information Act, uh, to harass the uh, uh, efforts by the federal government to combat communism here and abroad. I mean, that's kind of what the big focus of FOIA was in the 70s and early 80s. And Judicial Watch came around, and we recognized the Freedom of Information Act as a tool that could be used to advance conservative values. So as an educational foundation, 
we could educate people about what the government was really up to from, in many ways, a conservative perspective, because we want a smaller government, we want uh, our values protected, we want economic freedom, strong national defense and national security and things like that. And uh, we began almost, well, actually, this month we're celebrating Judicial Watch's 25th anniversary, 25 years. Uh, during the Clinton administration, you know, there was a lot of corruption to be uncovered. And, uh, and Judicial Watch was the first conservative group that used the FOIA on behalf of the values of limited government and exposing um, the corruption behind uh, what is typically seen as uh, somewhat innocuous government activity. In my view, pretty much every time the government wants to engage in a major program, it involves corruption. So few uh, leftists, and certainly the media, never thought to investigate the government from that perspective. Their view on using FOIA was, oh, oh my gosh, the government has this program, but it's not big enough, and it isn't helping enough poor people. And it was all about advancing the welfare state and, uh, or, or the enterprise of big government as opposed to highlighting the damage that big government does and the corruption behind it. And so the biggest corruption scandal of all time in American history is the targeting of President Trump. I'm sure you agree. And Judicial Watch has been second to none in using the Freedom of Information Act to pry loose uh, details about that scandal that the government doesn't want you to know about. Specifically, the Obama administration wanted hidden, that the deep state today wants hidden. And along those lines, we've been getting documents, certainly from the Justice Department and the FBI, uh, but the State Department as well. And we have new documents that are the State Department for further cementing the kind of the, uh, the view that the State Department was a key player in the Spygate affair against President Trump. How is that? Because you had State Department officials working with Christopher Steele, the Fusion GPS hired spy. Fusion GPS, of course, was paid by the Clintons and the DNC. Steele was also paid for with uh, FBI funds during the campaign. And he was working with the State Department to launder information into the FBI and into the Justice Department and to coordinate with the uh, president's uh, political enemies or then-candidate Trump's political enemies in Congress. And Judicial Watch has uncovered most of that. And one of the key players was Jonathan Weiner. And Jonathan Weiner was hired by John Kerry to be their Libya expert. But he was a pal of Christopher Steele's. He was a pal of Sidney Blumenthal, a Hillary Clinton friend, and Cody Shear, another Hillary Clinton friend, two individuals who are pretty uncontroversial, and that's my charitable way of putting it. Sidney Blumenthal had such a disreputable reputation that the Obama people supposedly told the Clinton State Department, he can't work there. We don't want him part of your team. So what did Hillary Clinton do? She used him as a secret advisor on her secret email system. That was uncovered by Judicial Watch. So this guy, Jonathan Weiner, admits he's talking to Blumenthal and Weiner, uh, Blumenthal, Steele, and this Cody Shear about this Russiagate fraud. He didn't say it was a fraud, but these Russiagate allegations. And he's working with Steele. 
sharing his information internally with the State Department, her, his, one of his bosses, Victoria Newland, who was, I think, the top European official for John Kerry. And then they were kicking it up to John Kerry. So John Kerry knows about the dossier. And we have these new documents showing that in, in September of 2016. So the, what Judicial Watch says, we ask for the documents, we get told no, we get the proverbial hand to the face, as I call it, they give us the hand to the face. Actually, that's better than what they usually do. The hand to the face is better than just the, turning their back and just refusing to respond to our request. So we filed a lawsuit, this time in concert with our friends at the Daily Caller News Foundation, for documents about what Christopher Steele was up to at the State Department. And so we're getting dozens of documents, many of which are classified. So Christopher Steele was involved in classified information gathering and dissemination of records at the State Department too. So it's September of 2016, a few weeks before the election, and we get this new batch of emails that show that Steele was working up um, that, uh, excuse me, that Victoria Newland and Jonathan Weiner set up a meeting to talk about a Russian matter in New York in September of 2016. And by the way, it's almost exactly the same day or days that Glenn Simpson of Fusion GPS, the other character in this, was also meeting with state people on this issue. So it was a full court press. And why is Newland important on this? Because she's already admitted that uh, they knew about the dossier from Steele in July of 2016, the State Department did. Remember, it's not just the Justice Department and FBI scandal, Spygate, and the smear campaign against Trump. It's a State Department scandal. They were involved. When the FBI, uh, uh, the Strzok crew and the Comey and McCabe crew wanted to meet with Steele in the UK, they, they can't do that operation without consulting their colleagues in the State Department. Victoria Nuland approved that meeting where they went to collaborate with the Clinton campaign in Europe. The FBI did. And she's still talking about Russia in September of 2016, three or four months later. And we've already gotten documents showing that Newland was doing it even after President Trump was elected in November, trying to get the dirt out, working with Steny Hoyer's top people. Who's Steny Hoyer, the number two in the Democratic majority right now in the House? And on top of that, the State Department was trying to torpedo the Trump administration by getting classified information to its friends in Congress. Newland was involved in that. We have the documents that show where they say, I forget, I forget who wrote it. They say we made the deadline. And you know what the deadline was? Inauguration day. They're pushing classified information to undermine President Trump. You know, I'm not, I don't have a security clearance, but I'm pretty darn confident that pushing classified information and putting it out there and giving it to people with the hopes that it has uh, a politically negative impact on someone is against the rules. You share and disseminate classified information to advance the national security interests, 
not to torpedo a president that you don't like politically, which is what the State Department was doing. Why would they otherwise be sending out material that they knew they wouldn't be allowed to send once Trump's appointees came over to the State Department? So all of these documents are coming out not because Congress. Congress has shut down in terms of doing investigations. I haven't heard a peep out of the Senate. I know Lindsey Graham says that he's interested in this issue, but I haven't seen much action by him other than him talking about it, which is fine, better than nothing, but I still haven't seen anything. And of course, the House Democrats, their party, and as I pointed out, they're actually directly implicated in the Russiagate scam. They're not going to do anything. So once again, it's Judicial Watch to the rescue here. We have to sue in court to get this basic information about the biggest corruption scandal in American history. We're not getting everything we want, but we're getting more than anyone else is. We wouldn't know about the State Department corruption, but for Judicial Watch. The State Department corruption in terms of the targeting of Trump. So those of you who support Judicial Watch, you can pat yourselves on the back because your support has allowed us to get this key information about the State Department's involvement in the attacks on President Trump. State Department helped steal, disseminate the dossier. Jonathan Weiner, who I talked about, he wrote in the Washington Post how he actually wrote material for Steele to use and put in his dossier. The dirty little secret is that Christopher Steele was only one author of the dossier he was writing. The Obama administration helped them write it. Now I know Mr. Mueller is supposed to testify. I don't know if he will testify. I guess uh, it's been put off. I guess he'll supposedly testifying next week. Is he going to be asked any of this? Of course not. Well, maybe. Maybe the Republicans will ask a few questions here. But that's not the purpose for bringing them in. There's going to be no oversight into this basic corruption of the Obama agencies that's still percolating today. Because I want, I, want to, I want to tie this all together. Uh, there's been this big corruption, uh, big, um, big brouhaha over these four members of Congress, these hardcore socialist types in Congress, and the president's criticism of them. He basically took this love it or leave it tact. And uh, he didn't mention race. He was obviously responding to their ideology, if you read his tweets. So the left and their acolytes in the media uh, accused him of being a racist, which is just a smear. And so they uh, began, so they created this resolution, which called him a racist. And my view that the passage of that resolution was all part of this effort to destabilize and harass the president. You had the Democratic Party uh, engaging in a spy operation through the Obama administration and allegiance literally with the Democratic Party's operation of DNC and the Hillary Clinton campaign, coordinating with Democrats in Congress in both the Senate and the House, it looks like. 
And then the House Democrats take over. The Democrats in the House get control of the House and they begin and they continue the presidential harassment, trying to rifle through his IRS files, submitting uh, or putting out uh, over, I think, well, last I counted it was 81, but it's probably over 100 subpoenas that are redundant, harassing, and repetitive of the fraudulent Russia gate investigation. Well, the investigation of the fraudulent Russiagate hoax. And you've got this reckless impeachment talk, and surprise, surprise, they're going to pretend the president's a racist and attack him that way. And you know what? I, I want you to go back and I want you to read that resolution that was passed, because I think it's pretty interesting. Because it taught, spends a lot of time justifying massive immigration and asylum abuses and open borders. And I think in one last, one, you know, it's only a, in passing almost that they supposedly condemn the president for racism. That resolution was more about pushing the open borders agenda than the racist smear job on President Trump in some ways. Isn't that interesting? Uh, so uh, one of the folks involved in this political fight, and it's a political fight. I, I, look, the president made a political statement. The left is responding with a political pushback. And so it's politics back and forth. What I'm more interested in is the element of, from Judicial Watch's perspective is what are the, where are the corruption issues here? And one thing that we've been looking at and we've been monitoring it. People often ask, are you investigating this? Are you investigating that? And I say, we're investigating everything. And we have been monitoring uh, the issues around Representative Ilhan Omar, who's the new representative from uh, Minnesota. Uh, she's a uh, naturalized American citizen. She came here from Somalia via Kenya. And there have been substantial questions raised about whether uh, she engaged in marriage fraud, tax fraud, and all sorts of other criminal conduct related to um, her marriages and other things. And uh, obviously it's gotten more attention because uh, Ilhan Omar is part of the, one of those four uh, socialist members of Congress the president specifically has been battling this week or they've been actually more attacking him than he's been attacking them directly, uh, although he pushed back at them at a, at a I think, a rally this week. But uh, so the Paraline blog, which is a conservative blog, has been investigating exhaustively Ilhan Omar's uh, publicly available records. And even, finally, the local Minnesota paper, who had been protecting Omar, uh, admitted this week that uh, there's a good chance she did marry her brother. So the big story, the story is, and, and uh, David Steinberg has a, his latest stories on the Paraline blog, and I encourage you to read it, because he and his colleagues there, including Scott Johnson and uh, Preya Samsandar, has have done a series of articles that kind of raise major, major questions about Omar. And from my perspective, there's more than enough publicly available evidence to warrant a criminal investigation of Omar's activities on immigration fraud, potentially tax fraud, and other, other uh, criminal conduct. 
DHS should look into it, the Justice Department should look into it, uh, because it involves tax fraud, the IRS should look into it. And this is the story. She goes to Kenya. She comes to the United States as, a, I think, 12 years old. Um, the allegation is that her family was split up, that she was able to come in, she and her, I think, father and a sibling were able to come in under another family name. Her other siblings did not come in and kept their original family name. And the story is, or it seems to be, that Omar had a marriage with her brother in order to help him get some benefits here in the United States and potentially immigration benefits, including immigration benefits here in the United States. And that despite her being married, she was, this, this is where I, I'm probably a little bit hazier than I should be, uh, she was filing tax returns with one husband while being married to the other. I forget which one is which, but you know, it looks like <laughs> it was so bad that she actually, I think, had to amend her tax returns. And so the Paraline blog has been doing the hard work here, and because it's conservative and the media is in bed with the left, it's run by the left, they were protecting her. Why? She, is, uh, she fits all the politically correct uh, categories. Uh, you know, she's young, she's a woman, she's a refugee, uh, she's Muslim-American, all those sorts of things. So any misconduct by someone who's a creature of the left like Alana Mara is, uh, they're, they're going to protect necessarily. So it was Paraline Blog that was doing all the heavy lifting here, and the Minneapolis paper followed up and, and kind of ignored all their prior reporting and highlighted issues that Omar um, really has to answer for. I mean, it looks like she was destroying uh, social media posts to make it harder to figure out what went on. Uh, when she's asked direct questions on it, uh, her response is, you're a racist for asking them, which may or may not be true, but it's not responsive to the fact-based questions that she's being asked here. And uh, so Mr. Freinberg, Mr. Steinberg, his latest story, this is his, I, I want to highlight this quote for you. He writes, please read the verified evidence below and read it below and, and read it in, along with the other verified evidence that he's been able to uncover with his colleagues. The information appears to give probable cause to investigate Omar for eight instances of perjury, immigration fraud, marriage fraud, up to eight years of state and federal tax fraud, two years of federal student loan fraud, and even bigamy. To be clear, the facts describe perhaps the most extensive spree of illegal misconduct committed by a House member in American history. You know, my guess, other than on Fox News, this is the only detail you'll see from someone in Washington on this. MSNBC is covering up for uh, the big networks aren't covering this story. They're just smearing those of us asking questions, which are legitimate here. I mean, when your local leftist newspaper basically admits you probably married your brother, you've got a problem. So I don't know what the Justice Department's going to do. 
I don't know what the Department of Homeland Security is going to do. I don't know what the IRS is going to do. But I do know what Judicial Watch is going to do. We're going to keep on investigating this. We're going to demand accountability for this person. And this isn't about her ideology, although she is ideologically quite noxious. Uh, she, she engages in this, in this sly, dishonest anti-Semitism. She's viciously anti-Israel. She supports uh, the Council on Arab-Islamic Relations, which is a supposedly U.S. organization that the U.S. government has believed to be a front for the terror group Hamas. There's no real debate about that. And Amar doesn't care about that. So she raises money for this front group for the terror organization Hamas. So that's problematic enough. But this is, this is just basic criminality if these allegations turn out to be true. Scott Johnson, who helped report, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's the guy I most associate with the Paraline blog. He was on uh, Fox this week. And Mr. Johnson said uh, there's a 98% chance that she engaged in marriage fraud. And it was, there's a 90% chance that the fraud was in, the 90% chance the fraud was with her brother. So uh, we're going to be investigating this. We may be taking some action over the next few days on this that I'll tell you about uh, next week. I don't know exactly what we're going to do, but we're going to take additional steps to make sure that these questions are answered. We're, you know, and the media uh, is just terrible on these issues. They can't be trusted. And I, I don't even like to call them the media anymore. I've taken to calling the New York Times and the Washington Post and these left-wing news organizations on the Internet as liberal advocacy groups, left-wing advocacy groups. And they sometimes engage in journalism. But the journalism is a tool these liberal advocacy groups use to advance their agenda. They're not independent journalists in any fair sense of the word. They're advocates uh, for a particular agenda, both ideological or, and partisan often. So uh, on issues like this, you can't trust the media. So you can trust Judicial Watch, though. And so with your support, we're going to continue to investigate uh, these issues. So election fraud, the media doesn't want to touch, but Judicial Watch will. The deep state conspiracy against President Trump, the media doesn't want to touch, but Judicial Watch will. And of course, the Ilan Omar controversies, they're, in the, they're, they're uh, trying to protect her. Uh, but Judicial Watch isn't afraid to ask these questions. And we're able only to do this thanks to your support. And I want to thank you personally for your support that allows us to do these, this great work, that allows us to be in federal court. In FOIA lawsuit after FOIA lawsuit on election integrity cases, and even just sitting here and asking these questions, we rely on your support to do that. So I want to thank you for joining our cause in that regard. And if you're not joining our, if you haven't joined our cause, I hope I've given you a good reason to do so. So have a great weekend, and I'll see you next week here on Judicial Watch's Weekly Update.
You have just listened to Tom Fitton's weekly update on JW TalkNet. Remember to subscribe and donate at judicialwatch.org slash donate.